The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts. Protesters here. We've been talking to people of uh, of different ages. Nicole here with me works at Bush Stadium as a cashier. She's in her uh, mid 40s. Nicole, you've lived in Ferguson for a while, and I want to ask you: Two of your police officers were shot about 20 feet from me. When you heard the news, how did you feel? I didn't feel anything. What do you mean by that? You didn't feel anything. I mean. I mean, it's sad because, like I said, there are people just like we are. The only thing about it, they're just on the other side right now. Hey, this is Maz and Juan. I'm Maz. I'm Juan. And welcome to... <laughs> <laughs> I just started laughing. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Maz and Juan, two adversarial journalists fighting back against some man. How's it going today, Juan? <laughs> it's going very well. I'm really tired, actually. I told you about my dentist appointment yesterday. I had to get four fucking fillings. Yes. Yeah, cost good. me nearly 200 bucks, even though I have dental insurance. How much would it cost that insurance? I'm thinking like maybe 400 or 500 dollars. It's ridiculous. You know, that's one of the things about this country, though. You may not have this problem in Canada. Dental care is not seen as a big issue here or an important issue. And it's all about fucking health. I was getting headaches because my teeth were hurting so bad. You don't need teeth to live, man. Come on, it's non-essential <laughs> luxuries. Apparently, for some of us, for some of us. Well, anyway, to, on today's show, we're going to be covering two topics. Um, the first topic surrounds why don't white Americans understand the animus and the hostility and the skepticism that many non-white people have about the police? And the second topic will be how the media portrays black crime um, criminals and white criminals and the differences between those two and what that also says about society. But we're going to start off with topic one and the black animus, the black animus or the animus of black people who have toward the police. And you began, we began the show by playing a clip from Fox News, a reporter asking a protester in Ferguson what she thought um, after the police officer was killed. And Miles, you listened to the clip and she didn't she doesn't have any feeling, she said. She said, I didn't feel anything. And the, the white Fox News reporter, of course, seemed very surprised. He's like, what do you mean you didn't feel, what do you mean you didn't feel anything? Yeah. Surprised and simultaneously pissed off that she um, didn't have his sort of emotion about the killing. Well, look, man, there's a whole different way of looking at uh, authority figures, especially armed authority figures, such as police, when you're part of a community which is disproportionately subject to violence from them. And, like... I think there's a lot of hero worship of police and military as well, which goes on in the United States. But, you know, these institutions don't look the same to everybody from your perspective. They could look like oppressors. They could look like murderers even. And especially in that community, it's not surprising me at all that uh, she had that response. Like, why would... Like, the Fox News guy was, like, shocked. He didn't understand. What do you mean you don't feel anything? You didn't feel your heart didn't break yeah. for these police officers? Of course it didn't fucking break. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> well, that's also... We've, I think we've spoken about this issue before, too. When these sorts of things have been happening lately because of the Black Lives Matter protests, all fucking black people are expected somehow to apologize or to feel a certain way when police officers are shot down and whatnot. I mean, you could ask that Fox News reporter, how did you feel when seven-year-old Ayanna Jones in Detroit was shot by the police? Or how did you feel when Michael Brown was shot down like a dog in St. Louis by the police? Or how did you feel when Rakia Boyd in Chicago was shot down by the police? Or how did you feel when Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy in Cleveland, was shot down by the police? How did you feel when that Indian man in Alabama a couple of months ago 
was paralyzed and tackled by um, local police that after being told crazy. that a light-skinned man, black man was roaming the neighborhood. <laughs> How did you feel about those things? I, I hate this like uh, this question. It suggests collective guilt. And yeah. It's part of not viewing people of color as individuals, but rather as some sort of undifferentiated Borg represented by their race. Because, of course, like, you know, people should have... These are ridiculous questions. Like, why would you ask someone who didn't have anything to do with it a question about this? But that's what they do all the time. Like, in mm-hmm. not just crime, but uh, terrorism, many other things which are, you know, acts of violence which are considered to be have racial connotations by implication. The suggestion that, you know, you're all responsible. You, you lot are responsible for it. But, you know, if you turn the question around, they would find it inexplicable. But somehow, somehow they keep taking this line again and again. And it's just fucked up. Yeah, well, a couple of weeks ago when I was arrested, or not a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago when I was arrested here at our beautiful office. Putting that on the, on the radio show? Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't, I'm not, well, I am now, yeah. <laughs> I was arrested by the NYPD because I didn't, I thought we talked about this before. You thought about you? We didn't? Huh. Well, anyway, so if you don't know, I was arrested by the NYPD <laughs> a couple Saturdays ago because they thought that I looked like someone who had been robbing the office buildings down here in the Flatiron District, and I didn't have my driver's license with me, so they took me to the 6th to the Precinct, I think, down on 14th or whatever street that is. And that sort, those sorts of things disproportionately, I think, affect black people, which is why this, this animus skepticism that many of us have against the police is so warranted. And if white people, that white Fox News report, he can't understand that because he, does, he doesn't have to deal with and um, be molested by a criminal justice system because criminal justice system is there to protect him. I can't always say that's true for um, black people. You know, another thing, too, is, like, that guy should still be able to understand and empathize with obvious situation which is going on all around us, you know, harassment of black Americans by the police. And it's like, you cannot go one week without hearing some egregious story of police brutality or even killings of uh, unarmed or black people in America, disproportionately men. But the thing is, when you're in a position of power, like, you don't have to think critically. Like, you can go yeah. through your whole life without ever thinking critically because if things are all working fine for you, there's no overwhelming impetus to feel empathy or develop a sense of empathy or to place yourself in someone else's shoes. You can actually get mad at those people for somehow complaining about a system which to them is perfect. And, you know, the system is functioning as you expect it to because in your personal life, nothing is wrong. When you see people who are complaining about it or who have run afoul of it in some way, you can actually blame them for their own shooting. You can blame them for this because, you know, why is this person not going with the program? And I think in a lot of cases this was happening. And that's why there's a lot of anger towards these protesters, too, because it's, you know, they're perceived as uh, rebelling. It's a system which is working, quote unquote, but it's only working depending on where you're looking at it from. I also think it's important to point out as well that a lot of the suspicions that black people have about the police, about the policemen, racist and whatnot, Every it seems like every week something bleeds out about how you're the one who put me onto that story about the San Francisco police officers right, exchanging right. their texts. What were they? What did they say on the text? This mean, was in San Francisco, right? Something horrible, like texting each other about how you know you should, black people should be killed because they're just animals and just put them down like animals. Really vicious. vicious. I think one of the cops called black people nigger too. Oh yeah, they call them niggers. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very voluminous uh, category. For, genre of racist stuff that's being said but I mean these are the views of people who are carrying guns and walking around in American cities and you know policing black neighborhoods and now you say the word policing that's probably not even the word in some cases more like occupying or you know 
being a colonial police officer in an internal colony within your country. And these are the guys who are doing this. And, like, this just doesn't sink in. Like, no matter how many times we see this, some people continue to exi- insist that these people are a category of heroes. And no one's saying that it's an easy job being a police officer in any circumstance. Of course, there's difficulties involved in it. But these people are not heroes just by definition. They should be judged individuals, and they should not be accorded this blanket uh, defense or blanket, uh, I don't know how to say it, but... Uh, indulging their narrative regardless of what happens in the most sympathetic possible and way. And they often get the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Absolutely, right. It's something you don't give to um, people who are not police officers and people who encounter the police. Did you see this? Uh, the boy in Virginia. No, actually, the Darren Wilson, this thing is going around about how he spoke at a uh, oh, some hunt club. Hunt for Justice. Hunt for Justice club. Host, apparently hosted Darren William, Darren Wilson, and he spoke in front of them and gave him a standing ovation, and they said, we'll stand with you, and treated him like a hero and feted him as though he's some conquering warrior and saw him as an inspiration so someone who kills an unarmed black person you know even if you don't agree with the narrative if you're very committed to believing the police narrative you can just say it's a tragedy and let's move on you're actually lionizing him and treating him as a hero imagine how that would feel he killed an innocent young black boy teenager unarmed and he's being fed as a hero imagine how much rage that inspired people it's also says something about him about yeah. Wilson, that he, exactly. he needs this sort of attention, these sort of accolades, this sort of props, that he goes to these events, knowing that he'll get them. It says something about him, too. If he had any grace and any real remorse, he wouldn't have appeared at an event which is lauding him for killing a black kid. He would have said, no, this is distasteful, I'll stay out of the public eye. But no, he spoke there and he received accolades from these people who were obviously horrific. It would be, it would be interesting to ask, if I could, Event those event the organizers behind that event. Why did you invite him? What is there about him? I mean, I already, obviously, I already think I know. I already know. Yeah, yeah, but it would be interesting asking folks. What What is there about him that you find so admirable? I mean, what is what did he do to which all of this applaud applause is warranted? And you know, it was interesting too. Is he's not? It's not even just police officers in this situation. Like you're talking about the motivations of people who are lionizing these uh, individuals. Like, George Zimmerman also has a very huge uh, following, and he's spoken at events. He's ra- people have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for him. Why exactly? He's not a police officer. Why exactly are heroic? Or is, this, is he expressing some pathology, which is widely felt, of seeing these black kids and wishing someone would just kill them? And yeah, and that goes it? to the point. This isn't just about, never has been just about the police and their interactions with um, black people. There is a segment of the American population that actively hates and I think celebrates uh, when black people are killed. They, I mean, if you view black people as many of these folks do, if you view black people as these sort of um, genetically defective animals who um, are causing all the problems in this country, then when black people are killed, something you're going to celebrate. Absolutely. And there really is not a latent, but like an active hatred which is being expressed very often through the institutions of society such as the police. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the other things I wa- um, wanted to mention about this whole thing, um, last week I think there was a six-year-old boy named Marcus Johnson Jr. He was shot. He was in St. Louis, my hometown, like right around the corner where my family lives. He was coming back from the park with his family, and you know his father and got into it with some dudes, and they shot into the car, and they shot him in the chest and killed him. And there was a St. Louis City police officer who... You know, he wrote this very moving, um, this very moving blog post, I guess, 
about how this cop carried Marcus's body into the hospital and how um, this cop does he just doesn't understand why all this killings happen happening. He respects some of the protesters and um, I don't know I was just I always try to judge people you know as individuals. Obviously, I think the police say in this country is racist and hate hates black people, actively hates black people. But I can't say that's true for all police officers. I wouldn't make that argument. Obviously, that would be foolish to make. There are some police officers out there who do deserve our respect and whatnot and who are trying to do the best they can do given really horrible circumstances. Like the police officers here in New York a couple years ago um, filed suit because they claimed that their supervisor, their lieutenant or whatever, was trying to tell them to arrest black people to meet a fucking quota, which we know exists within police departments across this country. We know some people don't want to admit that. So there are some good people out there. Um, just a horrible situation when you're surrounded and operating an institution that is inherently racist and anti-black. Um, it's going to be difficult. You know, Hannah Arendt, she was a scholar of totalitarianism. She yeah, I know said she that, no, listen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> she said that, uh, that she documented like the Nazi atrocities and what went on there. Like she's not like, not to analogize the police in America to the Nazis, but, uh, and any abu- any any that. abusive institution or any institution which is committing abuses at a systemic level, most people will comply with it, not because they're evil, just because they get co-opted by these institutions and they shape their behavior. It's the banality of evil. Banality of evil. But there will always be some who do not. There will always be some who rebel against it, which is extremely difficult and takes great character and all usually comes at great risk to oneself. And, you know, we've seen throughout history, there are some people who will always say, no, this is wrong, and they'll be able to develop empathy and act on that empathy in the face of the greatest odds. Yeah, and that's why it's also important, I think, um, that the Black Lives Matter protesters are focusing on the police as an institution. This isn't about individuals. A lot of people do want to make it about individuals with regards to the policing apparatus in this country. This isn't about individual cops. This is about a a law and order um, system or entity that was built to oppress and to hate and to be vicious and violent toward black people, continuing with those same sort of evil, um, horrible, putrid, this putrid treatment of black people. And I think those texts from that San Francisco police officer only exemplified or validated the perceptions that many black people already have of the police. And it's also telling that it's taking place in a place like San Francisco as well, which is seen as a liberal beacon for a lot of those white liberals and northerners who think this sort of things only happens in the South or in the Midwest or in places like St. Louis. Sort of racism and sort of anti-black ideology infects this country from coast to coast. And you're kidding yourselves if you think Ferguson of St. Louis is an anomaly. It happens all over this world, all over this country. This world, too, as a matter of fact. Black people are treated horribly by police in, I don't know, fucking France. 80% of the people who are in French prisons are black or Arab. Yeah. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Right, right. Well, these are these institutions were built in many ways as outgrowths of slavery or colonialism, and changing them is a generational process. And not to say they haven't changed at all, but there's still a long way to go. This is, these are the origins of these. Absolutely, absolutely. So you want to move on to yeah. the second what topic? Was the, what was the second? Shit. <laughs> it was a... Uh, the media portrayal and depiction of black criminals versus white criminals. Is it kind of the same thing? Why do you think it's the same thing? Are they related to each other? Well, it's all related, yeah, since you're talking about crime and in one instance we're talking about the police. What's the, what's the story that jumps out at you about this? Uh... Well, because, you know, I, I wrote this story about Anaya Ferguson, right, the, um, right. 
the 16-year-old girl who was, who's been charged as an adult for her role in the brawl down in Flatbush at McDonald's. And the New York Daily News, which is one of the big tabloids here in this city, had her on the cover and calling her a brute and a savage, two terms that have a long and New York, sick New York history. Daily News. Yeah, the New York Daily News, which is considered the left of center or the center is left. Is it considered left of center? The center left, center That's left. It's a fucking paper. lunatic newspaper. Like, the thing that's yeah, well, they, there are like insane. Well, both of those tabloids are off. And the New York Post, Post, oh, Post, Post is like unbelievable. Yeah, but this is considered center left. Seriously? Yeah. Oh. Which, so calling her a brute and a savage, and of course those terms have a long history of being used to describe black people. And I say this because on Tuesday, in Saint pa- on St. Patrick's Day in Manhattan, there was a video of these white men brawling, a white man who was knocked unconscious during the fight, and the other white man comes up and kicks him in the head. Why? Oh, of course, I already know the answer to this question. I'm going to pose it anyway. <laughs> why? Why was that not on the New York Daily News? Why was that man not called a brute or a savage? Why isn't that getting all the play that the McDonald's brawl got down in Flatbush amongst these black teenage girls? Well, I think that uh, when you're looking at crimes committed by minorities or compared to crimes committed by white people, there's a desire when it's committed by white people to, you know, in look at the nuance of it, look contextualize it, or just some guys, they were drunk. Yeah, that's what someone that's told true. me on Twitter this morning when I tweeted, I was like, how dare you compare just a bunch of drunken guys horsing yeah, around. Dr- horsing around. Horsing around to, right, the, right. to the, um, these these girls down in Brooklyn. Right, so it's okay. We have to like understand where this fits in. But if it's uh, any minority, not just black people, their violent actions are imputed on entire categories of people. And mm-hmm. you see the uh, dredging up these horrific t- terms with horrific histories such as savage and brute and all these things, things which have been used to describe black people and minorities since time immemorial. And, you know, it's just, like, it's something you, it's a benefit of power. When you have the voice, you can actually look at your own action, actions of your own people, quote-unquote. People who belong to your tribe. People who belong to your tribe, where they fit. And you, meanwhile, you can depict the violence of other people, however you see it should fit in as well, too, and usually, you know, generalize them to some great degree. There was also a mass shooting just yesterday in Mesa, Arizona, by a white supremacist who, for whatever reason, had gone outside his motel and started shooting random people. Did anyone die? Yeah, someone died. I think someone four other people were shot. And, you know, no one's talking about what is this about white people, what is this about American culture, which inculcates on white men this disproportionate desire to shoot everyone around them. <laughs> no, no one's raising that question because, first of all, it would be a ridiculous question because we should not generalize all white people's violence based on the actions of these uh, mass shooters, regardless of how frequent they are because uh-huh. they're still a minority. But secondly, if had this been someone of a different race, just imagine the coverage. It would have been, if it was a black person, they would have said just the same, you know, black anger and violence, which is inherent to them. If it was a Muslim person or a brown person, they would have said something is ideology or something. Not just a Muslim or brown person, but let's say the, and the, the analogy would be, I guess, a religious Muslim extremist. Right, right. They this would, man was a white supremacist. It would have been 24-7 on coverage, the wall-to-wall exactly. coverage, yeah. hysteria, freaking out. But no, if it's a white person, I mean, I don't, I don't think that the Nazis should have had wall-to-wall coverage. I don't think it's, I mean, unfortunately in America, people are shot every day. That's another discussion, mm-hmm. but it happens all the time. It's not a unique event. But the fact that it was not even news, like it did not even register to any degree which is notable, that just seems like, you know, it's a, the egregious representation of double standard. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, you know, with the New, the New York tabloid or um, whatever, Covering that Brooklyn fight so intense, intensely, because um, it helps to further this narrative that black people are somehow 
more violent and whatnot. And a lot of, did get a lot of pushback today in emails and tweets from people who didn't like my story saying that Ferguson shouldn't be charged as an adult and shouldn't be sentenced to 25 years in prison. These people think that one man emailed me and said, well, look at all this crime within the black community or something. There's something, there's something wrong there. But like you just said a few moments ago, America is, is a really violent nation when compared to Very other much. Western countries. Right, right. I mean, it's not just because black people. It's also because white people, white Americans commit crime at a much higher rate than white people in Germany or white people in France, probably even white people in Canada or white people in Britain. Uh-huh. There's something uniquely wrong with crime that has that is that does have something to do with race, but it's also a uniquely American problem when compared to other our um, Western counterparts. And I wouldn't even just compare it to Western countries because a lot of Eastern countries have much lower murder. That's also true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And absolutely. it's like for in peacetime, fifteen thousand people a year are murdered in peacetime. Like, those are civil war numbers in <laughs> yeah, the country. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's shocking. I think one. One aspect of it is the huge prevalence of guns, but I don't think it can be boiled down just to guns either because Canada is full of guns. Uh, countries like Switzerland are full of guns, and they don't have these murder rates. I was they thinking don't. about this. I think it's our criminal justice system and how it's not – it's a it's a system that um, perpetuates a cycle of it crime. Perpetuates, but and brutal, it turns people, brutalizing people. Into yes, and it turns them into right. criminogenic persons when they get out. It's my whole part of my thesis about Anaya Ferguson. I'm sending this, this girl, and she is a girl. She's only 16 years old. Sending her to prison for 25 years is what she can get. Is that going to solve her problem? Is that going to solve the problems of the community from which she comes, or will it exacerbate them and make them worse? She's going to come out, you know, one day, decades from now, if she gets yeah. if she gets that uh, sentence. And is she going to be a better person from having brutalized in jail and treated like an animal in a cage for 20 years and dehumanized like that? Of course not. This is a system designed to turn people to, if they have a problem, make it worse. And, yeah. you know, needle them and humiliate them and degrade them until they explode. Also, if she does get out, this is something else. She'll be a felon because she's been charged with felonious gang assault. And felons in this country are not liable, or not eligible, I should say, for government-subsidized student loans. What the hell is she supposed to do when she oh, gets out? Even, even in jail, she can't be able to do her GED. Oh, she can get a GED, but she, she can't go to college with, uh, when she gets out of prison um, with the help of student loans. And you know who signed that law? America's first black president, Bill Clinton. That son yeah, of a yeah. bitch. Well, he, he sort of took out a lot of his life's frustrations on America's poor and prisoners for some <laughs> yeah. reason. That's true, but all these points about the criminal justice system just being this vicious cycle, I, you know, I think it's irresponsible that also that the media doesn't cover these things. Absolutely irresponsible. Because I mean, it's not that difficult the, to throw in a paragraph into your story the, about the, the criminal justice system and how it's ineffective and counterproductive. They're completely complicit in the demonization and dehumanization of these people because criminal is one of those categories that... You know, it's a name, it's a title you give somebody that allows you to disregard their rights and disregard them as a human. It's a dehumanizing sort of label you place on somebody. So Anaya Ferguson, she's by any account a child. 16 years old is a child legally and, you know, I think by... Biologically and mentally. Biologically, mentally, even like, you know, in common usage, people would refer to a 16-year-old as a child or on the cusp of childhood. And the fact that she's facing prison time of an adult and she's the solution to her problem as for the state is to sentence her to jail like an adult for decades it's also a lack of compassion and a systemic problem which as you said is perpetuating these issues and is contributing to the endless cycle of violence we see in American cities that's absolutely true absolutely true 
Well, so now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me something good. Um, should I go first or should you? You go first. Actually, all right, yeah, fine. Cool, I'll go first. All right, tell me something good. So last week, um, a few Caribbean nations um, announced that they're suing Britain, France, and I think Belgium for their role. <laughs> you have that perplexed look on your face. No. For that role, for their roles in the colonial slave trade and whatnot. Cause there's, it's amazing. They're seeking reparations, and they want to have their debt. Uh, Where are they suing them? Um, that's a good point, though. Where did I see this? I looked this up. What court are they suing them? Man? I'm not sure yet. According to the Lee Day Law Firm, the Caribbean community also wants reparation payments. It doesn't say where they're suing them yet. Well, that's amazing. It is amazing, and it's something that we don't get, we don't hear um, enough about in this country. They owe these people for what they did to them. Straight about that. I don't see how that fits in with our mission of the intercept. I mean, I'm sure we can shoehorn it in some way. Yeah, I'm not sure I could. But, yeah, they owe these people what they did to them. They owe them, and they, they never paid them back. These countries still have tremendous problems as a result of um, the colonial age and the slavery and the racism and the exploitation. Um, and these people just never take responsibility for what they do, and then they have the audacity to, like, talk shit about these countries. This is why the New York Times article last week talking about France is leading the way um, battling Muslim extremists in, um, in northern Africa. France is leading the way. France is responsible for a lot of that shit. France is responsible. I mean, France colonized huge portions of the continent at some point. They were the most the problems we face today are a direct result in many ways, or I should say is a result, of French racism and colonialism. They were in many ways the worst colonialists too, because unlike the British, who were also very brutal, they actually tried re-engineering society by turning people into Frenchmen. Turning people into Frenchmen. Which, you know... An experiment they tried most prominently in Algeria. Right. They made Algeria part of France's yeah. province. And they... Yeah. You know, the problems in Algeria today are inextricable from what happened when France derastated millions of people from the villages and destroyed ways of life which existed since, you know, the beginning of civilization almost. This goes back to irresponsibility, though. They think they don't bear any responsibility no, for that. that. They don't want to take any blame for what right, they did right. to those people. And if things are wrong in the country now, then it must be something wrong with them. It's ridiculous. God, it's so awful. I swear to God. I'll never understand these people. So I just started thinking now about Rwanda and how they fucked that place up and caused thousands yeah. of people to be murdered in the mid-1990s. Right, right. The dividing, like, this divide and rule thing is something which goes on to this day. It divide did, and conquer. That's what they did in yes. Iraq, too. They divided people based on sectarian lines. And when you do that, it's not very hard to re-engineer society. You can start apportioning. If someone invaded America today and started, you know, okay, the blacks are here, whites are there, start arming the blacks and, like, giving them positions of power over the whites or making the, this section of whites this. You can and you can engineer a civil war in America, no problem. Very easily, too. Flooding with arms, no fucking problem. So this is some, this is the same colonial tactics you're using again and again. And, you know, these problems, once you unleash them, they don't get fixed. They These countries break apart and they don't get put back together. It's easy to break these countries up. Very easy. It's very difficult to piece them back together and to solve the problems that are the consequences of this sort of this racist labor, exploitation, colonial mindset. Anyway, tell me something good. I'm reading a book which is a his, sort of a his, history, an overarching history of the French Revolution and that period of French Revolution of ending with the Springtime of Nations in 1848. And I'm reading it because I've been kind of, you know, of course, kind of, uh, most of us are very inspired by the Arab Spring Revolutions that happened in 2011 and they've kind of gone to hell. 
And I think that people tend to romanticize revolutions a lot, whereas historical records... Especially white revolutions. Right, right. And if you look at the records of revolutions, most of them, most revolutions make things worse in the short to medium term, Mm -hmm. and maybe in the long term they'll make things better. Like, maybe. Like, it's not guaranteed at all. So this romanticization of revolutions, and even by... I think some people in America, when they talk about revolution in this flippant way, I don't know necessarily if you know what you're talking about and what the (laughs) magnitude of what you're saying is right now, because like I I think we can all agree there are problems in America and Western countries, but revolution is not a solution. Revolution is the absolute last... uh, It should be the absolute last resort you ever take, because it's upending society, it's guaranteeing a violent counter-revolution, more or less, and it's... It's ruining everything for this generation, hoping that, you know, you throw the cards back up, they'll arrange in a way which is better in the end, which is not guaranteed at all. Oh, so you're taking a counter-argument that you hear from a lot of leftists. I was just having this argument, or not argument, I was talking with uh, this woman who was a leftist the other day, and she mentioned the idea that there's a need right now in America for a revolution. I think it's very silly. Like, it's a silly sort of, like... It's an emotive position, or, like, it's just not rational. Because, look, look, America, for all its problems... It's probably more receptive to gradual change in most countries in the world. Like, you can influence American institutions. We have, for the most part, free media and somewhat responsive government. I think they've, it's been captured, a lot of institutions, by elites. But there's still room for latitude. A revolution should be if, like, you know, you can't even go home at night because, like, it's just the violence has become so endemic. Oh. This is the last chance. And, I mean, it's not to say that pushing very hard for gradual change is not something which is, you know, necessary and noteworthy of itself. It's just that revolution it entails, you know, upending the institution of society and clearing the slate. And it, there'll be violence and there'll be upheaval by definition. And it just doesn't make things better most times. It just Oh, I'm, yeah, I, I'm a social democrat too. I believe in, like, using our democratic institutions to bring about um, social, those sort of social policies. Um but you know there was a story, there was a study that came out I think last year from two professors one from Princeton and one from Northwestern, and the study said that for all intents and purposes America is no longer a functional democracy because all of our policies and our politics are dictated and controlled by the money classes and the elites to which of which you just spoke. So I can understand also the the. Um, What's, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the lack of faith uh, absolutely. in our institutions uh, to bring about the change that we so clearly and desperately need. And when you're looking at a, like a Bush-Clinton 2016 elections, it's very easy to come to that conclusion. And it falls exactly yeah. at these fucking two idiots. Oh, my God. Well, that's going to be it for Oz and Juan this week. Thanks for joining us always. We're listening. We hope you're listening, too. And... I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but it'll be good. Whatever. All right. Yeah, see you then.